Section 27 of the Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Five Pound. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. Edited by Henry Festing Jones. Chapter 20. First Principles. Part 2. Free Will, Otherwise Cunning. The element of free will, cunning, spontaneity, individuality, so omnipresent, so essential, yet so unreasonable, and so inconsistent with the other element, not less omnipresent and not less essential, I mean necessity, luck, fate, this element of free will, which comes from the unseen kingdom within which the writs of our thoughts run not, must be carried down to the most tenuous atoms whose action is supposed most purely chemical and mechanical. It can never be held as absolutely eliminated, for if it be so held, there is no getting it back again, and that it exists even in the lowest forms of life cannot be disputed. Its existence is one of the proofs of the existence of an unseen world, and a means whereby we know the little that we do know of that world. Necessity, otherwise luck. It is all very well to insist upon the free will or cunning side of living action, more especially now when it has been so persistently ignored. But though the fortunes of birth and surroundings have all been built up by cunning, yet it is by ancestral vicarious cunning, and this, to each individual, comes to much the same as luck pure and simple. In fact, Luck is seldom seriously intended to mean a total denial of cunning, but it is for the most part only an expression whereby we summarize and express our sense of a cunning too complex and impalpable for conscious following and apprehension. When we consider how little we have to do with our parentage, country, and education, or even with our genus and species, how vitally these things affect us both in life and death, and how, practically, the cunning in connection with them is so spent as to be no cunning at all. It is plain that the drifts, currents, and storms of what is virtually luck will be often more than the little helm of cunning can control. And so, with death, nothing can affect us less, but at the same time nothing can affect us more. And how little can cunning do against it? At the best, it can only defer it. Cunning is nine-tenths luck, and luck is nine-tenths cunning. But the fact that nine-tenths of cunning is luck leaves still a tenth part unaccounted for. Choice. Our choice is apparently most free, and we are least obviously driven to determine our choice in those cases where the future is most obscure, that is, when the balance of advantage appears most doubtful. Where we have an opinion that assures us promptly which way the balance of advantage will incline, whether it be an instinctive, hereditarily acquired opinion, or one rapidly and decisively formed as the result of postnatal experience, then our action is determined at once by that opinion, and freedom of choice practically vanishes. Ego and non-ego. We can have all ego, or all non-ego. But in theory, you cannot have half one and half the other. Yet in practice, this is exactly what you must have, for everything is both itself and not itself at one and the same time. A living thing is itself in so far as it has wants and gratifies them. It is not itself, 
insofar as it uses itself as a tool for the gratifying of its wants. Thus, an amoeba is aware of a piece of meat, which it wants to eat. It has nothing except its own body to fling at the meat and catch it with. If it had a little hand net, or even such an organ as our own hand, it would use it. But it has only got itself. So it takes itself by the scruff of its own neck, as it were, and flings itself at the piece of meat, as though it were not itself, but something which it is using in order to gratify itself. So we make our own bodies into carriages every time we walk. Our body is a toolbox, and our bodily organs are the simplest tools we can catch hold of. When the amoeba has got the piece of meat and has done digesting it, it leaves off being not itself and becomes itself again. A thing is only itself when it is doing nothing. As long as it is doing something, it is its own tool and not itself. Or you may have it that everything is itself in respect of the pleasure or pain it is feeling, but not itself, in respect of the using of itself by itself as a tool with which to work its will. Or perhaps we should say that the ego remains always ego in part. It does not become all non-ego at one and the same time. We throw our fist into a man's face as though it were a stick we had picked up to beat him with. For the moment our fist is hardly us, but it becomes us again as we feel the resistance it encounters with the man's eye. Anyway, we can only chuck about a part of ourselves at a time. We cannot chuck the lot. And yet, I do not know this, for we may jump off the ground and fling ourselves on to a man. The fact that both elements are present, and are of such nearly equal value, explains the obstinacy of the conflict between the upholders of necessity and free will, which, indeed, are only luck and cunning under other names. For, on the one hand, the surroundings so obviously and powerfully mould us, body and soul, and even the little modifying power which at first we seem to have is found, on examination, to spring so completely from surroundings formerly beyond the control of our ancestors, that a logical thinker, who starts with these premises, is soon driven to the total denial of free will except, of course, as an illusion. In other words, he perceives the connection between ego and non-ego, tries to disunite them so as to know when he is talking about what, and finds to his surprise that he cannot do so without violence to one or both. Being, above all things, a logical thinker, and abhorring the contradiction in terms involved in admitting anything to be both itself and something other than itself at one and the same time, he makes the manner in which the one is rooted into the other a pretext for merging the ego, as the less bulky of the two, in the non-ego. Hence, practically, he declares the ego to have no further existence, except as a mere appendage, an adjunct, of the non-ego, the existence of which he alone recognizes, though how he can recognize it without recognizing also that he is recognizing it as something foreign to himself, it is not easy to see. As for the action and interaction that goes on in the non-ego, he refers it to fate, fortune, chance, luck, necessity, immutable law, providence, meaning generally improvidence, or to whatever kindred term he has most fancy for. In other words, he is so much impressed with the connection between luck and cunning, and so anxious to avoid contradiction in terms, that he tries to abolish cunning, and dwells, as Mr. Darwin did, almost exclusively upon the luck side of the matter. Others, on the other hand, 
find the ego no less striking than their opponents find the non-ego. Every hour they mould things so considerably to their pleasure that, even though they may for argument's sake admit free will to be an illusion, they say with reason that no reality can be more real than an illusion which is so strong, so persistent, and so universal. This contention, indeed, cannot be disputed, except at the cost of invalidating the reality of all, even our most assured convictions. They admit that there is an apparent connection between their ego and non-ego, their necessity and free will, their luck and cunning. They grant that the difference is resolvable into a difference of degree and not of kind. But, on the other hand, they say that in each degree there still lurks a little kind, and that a difference of many degrees makes a difference of kind. There being, in fact, no difference between differences of degree and those of kind, except that the second are an accumulation of the first. The all-powerfulness of the surroundings is declared by them to be as completely an illusion, if examined closely, as the power of the individual was declared to be by their opponents, inasmuch as the antecedents of the non-ego, when examined by them, proved to be not less due to the personal individual element everywhere recognizable than the ego, when examined by their opponents, proved to be mergeable in the universal. They claim, therefore, to be able to resolve everything into spontaneity and free will with no less logical consistency than that with which free will can be resolved into an outcome of necessity. Two incomprehensibles. You may assume life of some kind omnipresent forever throughout matter. This is one way. Another way is to assume an act of spontaneous generation, i.e., a transition somewhere and somewhen from absolutely non-living to absolutely living. You cannot have it both ways, but it seems to me that you must have it both ways. You must not begin with life, or potential life, everywhere alone, nor must you begin with a single spontaneous generation alone, but you must carry your spontaneous generation, or denial of the continuity of life, down, ad infinitum, just as you must carry your continuity of life, or denial of spontaneous generation, down ad infinitum, and, compatible or incompatible, you must write a scientific Athanasian creed to comprehend these two incomprehensibles. If, then, it is only an escape from one incomprehensible position to another, qui bono to make a change, why not stay quietly in the Athanasian creed as we are? And, after all, the Athanasian creed is light and comprehensible reading in comparison with much that now passes for science. I can give no answer to this as regards the unintelligible clauses, for what we come to in the end is just as abhorrent to and inconceivable by reason as what they offer us. But as regards what may be called the intelligible parts, that Christ was born of a virgin, died, rose from the dead, we say that, if it were not for the prestige that belief in these alleged facts has obtained, we should refuse attention to them. Out of respect, however, for the mass of opinion that accepts them, we have looked into the matter with care, and we have found the evidence break down. The same reasoning and canons of criticism which convince me that Christ was crucified convince me at the same time that he was insufficiently crucified. I can only accept his death and resurrection at the cost of rejecting everything that I have been taught to hold most strongly. I can only accept the so-called testimony in support of these alleged facts at the cost of rejecting 
or at any rate invalidating, all the testimony on which I have based all comfortable assurance of any kind whatsoever. God and the Unknown God is the unknown, and hence the nothing qua us. He is also the ensemble of all we know, and hence the everything qua us. So that the most absolute nothing and the most absolute everything are extremes that meet, like all other extremes, in God. Men think they mean God by something like what Raphael and Michelangelo have painted. Unless this were so, Raphael and Michelangelo would not have painted as they did. But, to get at our truer thoughts, we should look at our less conscious and deliberate utterances. From these it has been gathered that God is our expression for all forces and powers which we do not understand, or with which we are unfamiliar, and for the highest ideal of wisdom, goodness, and power which we can conceive, but for nothing else. Thus, God makes the grass grow because we do not understand how the air and earth and water near a piece of grass are seized by the grass and converted into more grass. But God does not mow the grass and make hay of it. It is Paul and Apollos who plant and water, but God who giveth the increase. We never say that God does anything which we can do ourselves, or ask him for anything which we know how to get in any other way. As soon as we understand a thing, we remove it, from the sphere of God's action. As long as there is an unknown, there will be a God for all practical purposes. The name of God has never yet been given to a known thing except by way of flattery, as to Roman emperors, or through the attempt to symbolize the unknown generally, as in fetish worship. And then the priests had to tell the people that there was something more about the fetish than they knew of, or they would soon have ceased to think of it as God. To understand a thing is to feel as though we could stand under or alongside of it in all its parts and form a picture of it in our minds throughout. We understand how a violin is made if our minds can follow the manufacture in all its detail and picture it to ourselves. If we feel that we can identify ourselves with the steam and machinery of a steam engine so as to travel in imagination with the steam through all the pipes and valves, if we can see the movement of each part of the piston, connecting rod, etc., so as to be mentally one with both the steam and the mechanism throughout their whole action and construction, then we say we understand the steam engine, and the idea of God never crosses our minds in connection with it. When we feel that we can neither do a thing ourselves, nor even learn to do it by reason of its intricacy and difficulty, and that no one else ever can or will, and yet we see the thing none the less done daily and hourly all round us, then we are not content to say we do not understand how the thing is done. We go further and ascribe the action to God. As soon as there is felt to be an unknown and apparently unknowable element, then, but not till then, does the idea of God present itself to us. So, at coroner's inquest, juries never say the deceased died by the visitation of God, if they know any of the more proximate causes. It is not God, therefore, who sows the corn. We could sow corn ourselves. We can see the man with a bag in his hand, walking over ploughed fields and sowing the corn broadcast. But it is God who made the man, who goes about with the bag, and who makes the corn sprout, for we do not follow the processes that take place here. 
As long as we knew nothing about what caused this or that weather, we used to ascribe it to God's direct action and pray him to change it according to our wants. Now that we know more about the weather, there is a growing disinclination among clergymen to pray for rain or dry weather, while laymen look to nothing but the barometer. So, people do not say God has shown them this or that when they have just seen it in the newspaper. They would only say that God had shown it them if it had come into their heads suddenly, and after they had tried long and vainly to get at this particular point. To lament that we cannot be more conscious of God and understand him better is much like lamenting that we are not more conscious of our circulation and digestion. Provided we live according to familiar laws of health, the less we think about circulation and digestion the better, and so, with the ordinary rules of good conduct, the less we think about God, the better. To know God better is only to realize more fully how impossible it is that we should ever know him at all. I cannot tell which is the more childish, to deny him or to attempt to define him. Skyla and Charybdis. They are everywhere. Just now, coming up Great Russell Street, I loitered outside a print shop. There they were, as usual. Hogarth's idle and virtuous apprentices. The idle apprentice is certainly Skyla, but is not the virtuous apprentice just as much Charybdis? Is he so greatly preferable? Is not the right thing somewhere between the two? And does not the art of good living consist mainly in a fine perception of when to edge towards the idle and when towards the virtuous apprentice? When John Bunyan, or Richard Baxter, whoever it was, said, there went John Bunyan, but for the grace of God, or whatever he did say, had he a right to be so cocksure that the criminal on whom he was looking was not saying much the same thing as he looked upon John Bunyan? Does any one who knows me doubt that if I were offered my choice between a bishopric and a halter, I should choose the halter? I believe half the bishops would choose the halter themselves if they had to do it over again. Philosophy as a general rule, philosophy is like stirring mud or not letting a sleeping dog lie. It is an attempt to deny, circumvent, or otherwise escape from the consequences of the interlacing of the roots of things with one another. It professes to appease our ultimate why, though, in truth, it is generally the solution of a simplex ignotum by a complex ignotius. This, at least, is my experience of everything that has been presented to me as philosophy. I have often had my why answered with so much mystifying matter that I have left off pressing it through fatigue. But this is not having my ultimate why appeased. It is being knocked out of time. Philosophy and Equal Temperament It is with philosophy as with just intonation on a piano. If you get everything quite straight and on all fours in one department, in perfect tune, it is delightful so long as you keep well in the middle of the key. But as soon as you modulate, you find the new key is out of tune, and the more remotely you modulate, the more out of tune you get. The only way is to distribute your error by equal temperament, and leave common sense to make the correction philosophy which the ear does instantaneously and involuntarily in music. Hedging the Cuckoo People will still keep trying to find some formula that shall hedge in the cuckoo of mental phenomena to their satisfaction. Half the books, nay, all of them that deal with thought and its ways in the academic spirit are but so many of these hedges in various stages of decay. God and Philosophies 
All philosophies, if you ride them home, are nonsense, but some are greater nonsense than others. It is perhaps because God does not set much store by or wish to encourage them that he has attached such very slender rewards to them. Common sense, reason, and faith. Reason is not the ultimate test of truth, nor is it the court of first instance. For example, a man questions his own existence. He applies first to the court of mother wit and is promptly told that he exists. He appeals next to reason, and, after some wrangling, is told that the matter is very doubtful. He proceeds to the equity of that reasonable faith which inspires and transcends reason, and the judgment of the court of first instance is upheld while that of reason is reversed. Nevertheless, it is folly to appeal from reason to faith unless one is pretty sure of a verdict, and, in most cases about which we dispute seriously, reason is as far as we need go. The Credit System the whole world is carried on on the credit system. If every one were to demand payment in hard cash, there would be universal bankruptcy. We think as we do mainly because other people think so. But if everyone stands on everyone else, what does the bottom man stand on? Faith is no foundation, for it rests in the end on reason. Reason is no foundation, for it rests upon faith. Argument we are not won by argument, which is like reading and writing and disappears when there is need of such vanity, or like color that vanishes with too much light or shade, or like sound that becomes silence in the extremes. Argument is useless when there is either no conviction at all or a very strong conviction. It is a means of conviction and as such belongs to the means of conviction, not to the extremes. We are not won by arguments that we can analyze, but by tone and temper, by the manner which is the man himself, logic and philosophy. When you have got all the rules and all the lore of philosophy and logic well into your head and have spent years in getting to understand at any rate what they mean and have them at command, you will know less for practical purposes than one who has never studied logic or philosophy. Science. If it tends to thicken the crust of ice on which, as it were, we are skating, it is all right. If it tries to find, or professes to have found, the solid ground at the bottom of the water, it is all wrong. Our business is with the thickening of this crust by extending our knowledge downward from above. As ice gets thicker while the frost lasts, we should not try to freeze upwards from the bottom. Religion A religion only means something so certainly posed that nothing can ever displace it. It is an attempt to settle first principles so authoritatively that no one needs so much as even think of ever reopening them for himself or feel any, even the faintest, misgiving upon the matter. It is an attempt to get an irrefragably safe investment, and this cannot be got no matter how low the interest, which in the case of religion is about as low as it can be. Any religion that cannot be founded on half a sheet of notepaper will be bottom-heavy. And this, in a matter so essentially of sentiment as religion, is as bad as being top-heavy in a material construction. It must, of course, catch on to reason, but the less it emphasizes the fact, the better. Logic. Logic has no place save with that which can be defined in words. It has nothing to do, therefore, with those deeper questions that have got beyond words in consciousness. To apply logic here is as fatuous as to disregard it in cases where it is applicable. 
the difficulty lies as it always does on the borderlines between the respective spheres of influence logic and faith logic is like the sword those who appeal to it shall perish by it faith is appealing to the living god and one may perish by that too but somehow one would rather perish that way than the other and one has got to perish sooner or later common sense and philosophy the voices of common sense and of high philosophy sometimes cross but common sense is the unalterable canto farno and philosophy is the variable counterpoint first principles it is said we can build no superstructure without a foundation of unshakable principles there are no such principles or if there be any they are beyond our reach we cannot fathom them therefore qua us they have no existence for there is no other is not than inconceivableness by ourselves there is one thing certain namely that we can have nothing certain therefore it is not certain that we can have nothing certain we are as men who will insist on looking over the brink of a precipice some few can gaze into the abyss below without losing their heads but most men will grow dizzy and fall the only thing to do is to glance at the chaos on which our thoughts are founded recognize that it is a chaos and that in the nature of things no theoretically firm ground is even conceivable and then to turn aside with the disgust fear and horror of one who has been looking into his own entrails even euclid cannot lay a demonstrable premise he requires postulates and axioms which transcend demonstration and without which he can do nothing his superstructure is demonstration his ground is faith and so his ultima ratio is to tell a man that he is a fool by saying which is absurd if his opponent chooses to hold out in spite of this euclid can do no more faith and authority are as necessary for him as for any one else true he does not want us to believe very much his yoke is tolerably easy and he will not call a man a fool until he will have public opinion generally on his side but none the less does he begin with dogmatism and end with persecution there is nothing one cannot wrangle about sensible people will agree to a middle course founded upon a few general axioms and propositions about which right or wrong they will not think it worth while to wrangle for some time and those who reject these can be put into madhouses the middle way may be as full of hidden rocks as the other ways are of manifest ones but it is the pleasantest while we can keep to it and the dangers being hidden are less alarming in practice it is seldom very hard to do one's duty when one knows what it is but it is sometimes exceedingly difficult to find this out the difficulty is however often reducible into that of knowing what gives one pleasure and this though difficult is a safer guide and more easily distinguished in all cases of doubt the promptings of a kindly disposition are more trustworthy than the conclusions of logic and sense is better than science why i should have been at the pains to write such truisms i know not end of section 27